0: Hey, Connor. Hey, Jason. This is Parker Ingley from Collinsville, Oklahoma, and calling in about the parable of the shrewd manager. So I'm going to jump right into Luke chapter 16. I'm out of the NIV right now, starting in verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, There is a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account for your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, "'What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes.'" So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, "'How much do you owe my master?' "'900 gallons of olive oil,' he replied. The manager told him, "'Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450.'" Then he asked the second, "'And how much do you owe?' "'A thousand bushels of wheat,' he replied. So he told him, "'Take your bill and make it 800.'" The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own?
1: When was a time that you found yourself in a position where you you had to make a choice, but there was no clear way that God was directing you?
2: Yeah, so I have a few big ones that would be complex and I wouldn't feel good about talking about it unless I had, you know, 20 minutes, but in brief, I I worked with a missions program for uh quite a few years. And we were under the leadership of a, of a of a large church, we were under the leadership of a larger program if you will, and I worked with college age students and there were certain guidelines, which generically I agreed with. I, I thought, in in my mind, I didn't like this is of God and this is not of God. It's just this is the way they choose to apply it. But often students would come; cause these are eighteen through twenty twenty five year old people. They would come and they would have friction with these guidelines, and they would say, "But doesn't God teach this?" And initially, I was just like, "You're being rebellious. Go back to class." <laughs> that, that was my honest answer. But the more I was there and the more I listened, it did bring me into tension because I'm like, I think your way is the better way here, but I'm committed to be in submission to these ways. And it did. It left me with a lot of tension where I I hate this term. Gaslighting has come on, you know, online the last couple of years, but I felt like I had to gaslight people like, Oh, it's not what you think. And it's this Mm. and this. And initially I did it ignorantly thinking I was defending, a good system, um, but in retrospect, especially, I was like, "Man, I was really uh, swallowing a lot of tension." Yeah, because I felt like I had to betray one side or the other, and I don't even know if I prayed well through that. To be frank, um, but I recognize now, man, that was a really tough spot. And I, uh,
1: even if I were to go back now, i wouldn't like, even know what what Ooh. would be the right answer. Sure, that's really good, and I think it brings. It brings to mind, we're recording this on the 28th, October 28th, and so next week is the election, and I know a lot of Christians feel very similar to, to all political situations that we find ourselves in, and so, yeah, I appreciate I appreciate your honesty, and I think what you said there is really important, that a lot of times we have this idea that if we go back and we can make a different decision, it would just work out perfectly. We know exactly what to do, but I, I, I love the humbleness, I love the honesty of saying, I with how many years of experience I could go back and I still, I don't, would I make the exact opposite decision? Would I, how would I approach it? Yeah, I think that, I think that's kind of integral to what we're talking about today. So hello, my name is Connor and I'm Jason and you are listening to the Amazed and Perplexed Podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing the parable of the shrewd manager. It's found in Luke chapter 16. And the contributor for this week is Parker Ingley. And so let's hear a little of his thoughts on this story.
0: I'm going to start with a quick note of perplexion here. I think that's the noun form of that amazement and perplexion. So this parable has been a thorn in the proverbial side of my scriptural application for literally years. Like seven years ago, I think, maybe eight, was the first time that I read this scripture and tried, like, grappling with it and applying it to something in in my life and man this makes me has made me cringe every time i've read this text i've had to walk away from this text multiple times because i cannot wrap my mind around why jesus would tell me to do this is he is he contradicting himself here first i'm thinking who is the person that I'm supposed to connect with, you know, the manager, or the debtors, or who is it? And then, you know, based on how Christ kind of has a call to action there at the end, I'm drawn toward the actions of the manager. But then he commends the dishonest manager, or says the master commends the dishonest manager, presumably Christ or God being the master. I would be the manager in that case. Like, Jesus, you know that's falsifying documents, right? That's basically stealing. That's unethical, Jesus. You can't just tell people to go out and do this. So I'm going to start with a point of why I'm amazed, and this was when I compared it to another parable, and that would be found in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Now, this is the one of the unforgiving servant, and I'm not going to read all of that text, but I'm going to touch on the fact that the, the cast of this is, is fairly similar. We have a master, we have a, a servant-slash-manager, and then someone who owes that servant-slash-manager. So, obviously, I can fit myself firmly into the shoes of the unforgiving servant in that parable, and with God being the master and my neighbor being the person that I throttle toward the end of the passage. Something is owed me by my neighbor, and I need to reflect the grace of God in my dealings there. Now, by contrast, the manager is forgiving people of debts that he is not owed in the first place, which, jumping back to Jason's dichotomy of parable versus doctrine that he brought up in a prior podcast, this kind of brings me into the idea of doctrine, which is by nature our interpretation of what God is saying and how we live it out. That is something that we owe to God, but when I see someone that has, by my perspective, improper doctrine. I feel that it is owed to me, somehow I'm a part of that equation, that somehow this person owes me an apology for not getting their interactions with God right. Right? The question, who is owed the money, starts to paint a different picture of what this parable is trying to tell me here. So my amazement is that I have spent literally years hung up on the money and worldly bits of this parable that I didn't realize the currency being discussed here was grace. So at face value, if the currency here is grace, then the opening passage of this parable is that I'm losing my job due to mismanagement. If that is mismanagement of grace, then maybe I need to look at extending some more grace. So that points me in a very decided direction. Another thing that's interesting is the fact that the manager forgives a portion. He's not unable to forgive any, but the manager's also not able to forgive all. They just forgive a portion of the debt. That implies to me that we have some authority as managers to be an important part of this transaction of forgiveness that happens between between others and God. I see this most vividly when someone comes forward and asks for forgiveness for a sin against God from a congregation. That's not something that they necessarily owe the congregation, but... There's a palpable power in the form of being forgiven by your brothers and sisters that is beyond grace as a transaction, which it's not. By definition, I think that would defeat the point. The last point I'm going to throw out here is that the manager forgives what is in his or her power to forgive, and then here's what's still owed to the master. The remaining debt is discussed. It's not minimized or ignored. It's not belabored or weaponized, but it's brought into the frame to be addressed Immediately after, the manager says, I forgive you every penny that is in my power to forgive. You owe me nothing. So the beauty here is that I, as the manager, have had to be forgiven as well. This parable in the last month or two has turned into my new favorite parable. And so to wrap that up, I'm going to read verses 9 through 12, but I'm going to substitute the words grace and mercy for the monetary terms. I tell you, Use worldly grace to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly grace, who will trust you with true grace? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's mercy, who will give you mercy of your own? Love you guys. Let me know what amazes you about this parable.
1: Okay, so that was that was really fantastic, Parker. Thank you so much, man. There was there was so much good there. Like there was so much like to speak in technical terms. Content. Uh, There's so many thought-provoking things that Parker said that even after hearing it for the third or fourth time, where I my brain just starts going into all sort of different directions. And so, uh, man, I, I would just encourage you to listen to it multiple times because I keep hearing things that Parker says that makes me think in a new and pe- really cool way. So we're gonna try to kind of um try to talk about or try to process each one of his points and so it might be kind of you know haywire whether we go here or there but that's just the connor and jason way mm-hmm. so what are your what are your thoughts on on this jason the thing that i love
2: about listening to parker is that uh, number 1 it's this dynamic of parker has been doing has been on this amazing perplexed road before he, we would have called it that, and yes. I love that. So we are experiencing the fruit of him giving himself the freedom to be frustrated with the text, walk away, cringing at that text. So think about what he's saying. He cringed at the word of God, and he felt the freedom to walk away, and then come back and interact, and then walk away and come back and interact. That's the spirit that, that we are very much talking about to be unafraid, to say, man, this is my, when I hear this, that drives me crazy, or it blows my mind so much, I don't even know how to, even if it's amazing, I don't know what to do with it, you know, mm-hmm. and I love that. Uh, so we are are witnessing and and receiving the fruit of of that journey. So as I think about what he said, the things that, that jump out, the thing that perplexed him, where he started, was this, how do I apply this? How do, How do I, what is jesus actually calling me to do yeah
1: what are the practical ramifications
2: exactly of- and and i think that that is the that's what makes this a complicated and often unpleasant text i think i've only heard two sermons about this text in my whole life and i presented one of them mm-hmm. you know uh, and and the pre- i remember the presentation of this randy harrison a speaker named randy harris did a few years ago and he titled it uh, parables that keep me up at night like yeah. he was saying i'm perplexed by this text and i don't know quite what to do with it i i think i think that that's that is a universal rationale because basically it appears that jesus is calling us to be dishonest yes you know and i think that that the the linchpin of this is that dynamic of is the is jesus establishing doctrine or is he telling a parable and and that is not inconsequential that is key Mm-hmm. because if it's doctrine then we have to say well he's saying some dishonesty is fine as long as the ends justify the means and th- and that's a very troubling teaching and very anti other things he teaches but we could find that is rahab wrong for lying about where the spies were and we would say well she's honored for the act of lying mm. you know for i mean she's honored for faith in god and i would suggest Correct. Who do you fear worse? That, that's what she's honored for. Ultimately, she fears Jehovah God more than she fears, you know, the people of Jericho. Uh, but at the end of the day, her how, what she did is, is she lied and she's honored for that. So I do think that's an interesting dynamic. But when you switch to what amazed him and you talk about if, the, if this is a parable, what is it? What's the currency that we as Christians work in? And I have never thought about it that way before, but it's extremely illuminating to me. Uh, and I join him in being amazed because once you, it has the ring of truth that makes it much less challenging to align this with other truth that we know. Yes, with Jesus, because when you when you say this is a parable and not doctrine, then you step to well, what is the doctrine that Jesus gives us? The idea of honesty is a highly, uh, highly held uh, aspect of of Jesus' doctrine: truth mm-hmm. and honesty and clarity, not being um, self serving. You know, and thinking mostly of yourself. So when you make it a parable, which Jesus makes this a parable, then then you and you start talking in terms of what is the currency of the kingdom, and it is grace and it is mercy. Man, that that is a resounding new thought to me. Yes, what what I thought I was going to talk about coming in, I'm now. What was I going to say? Because it seems like it's it's so lame comparative.
1: Yeah, I, I think the the funny thing about this passage, and I think Parker gets at it so so well is that on surface level, it's a very, like for me, I feel the cultural differences in the context that Jesus and I, the differences that we would experience in our context, I feel them very heavily. There's almost this part where you read it initially, you go like, this seems convoluted. I'm not sure exactly where it's going to be. But I love when what you said and what Parker said, like diving deeper into it. There's this reality that jesus presents here that there are certain things that we're we're just going to exist with right like as much as i would love to live in a society where every like all of our needs were met and cash wasn't money wasn't a necessity we could we could work for you know for the love and for the passion and for the joy of it that is not where we were two thousand years ago and it's not where we are today and it's this beautiful turning upside down of what the world thinks money is for. The world thinks money, the world thinks that money is for safety and security. The world thinks that money is used to gain joy and fulfillment and happiness. And Jesus says, no money, money's a reality. Wealth is a reality. It can be a means to an end to a heavenly end if it's used selflessly. And I think this turns and this is this is really higher stuff. And I am not saying this like condescending, kind of I'm talking like in my own brain. This, this is like making my gears turn a little bit at a little bit different rate than they usually do. I think the way he says that takes a very a very hard concept for my brain to wrap around and, and makes it puts it in a manageable a manageable way. So one thing that I, I, would, I would love to kind of talk about, I love when Parker talked about there's this thing that when we see people interpret the Word of God in an incorrect way, or when we see somebody uh, that we have different theological perspectives on, there's this not, oh, I hope they get things right, or I hope they come to a proper understanding of God. There's this, they owe me having the right opinion. That's something that I I had never seen it myself, but once he said it, I couldn't unhear it. And I go, oh my gosh, that's that's me every single day. It's not, oh, we have different perspectives and I want you to see the truer, fuller picture of God. And I think this is what the Bible is talking about. Like, I, 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 ho- I want you to see it so much of the time and so much more often, it's not about God, it's about me. And man, him saying that, it was this, it was this, vi- it was this. Veil that I can't that he lifted away from me that I can't now put back and on the one hand I thank Parker for that on the other hand it's been kind of hard since he said that because I'm like oh that that's so true for me I think I think that is really it it really calls into question
2: the role that we play in God in God's kingdom Um, because I, I think we vacillate between or if you think of a pendulum we swing back and forth between. The extremes, and the extremes are negative in my te- in way I'm going to say this, is I'm fully responsible for everything. I better get this perfect, or God's responsible for everything. I really don't have a role, and neither of those are healthy biblical views. He calls for obedience, which would be us participating in what he's doing, and then he says we're more than conquerors, which is way beyond what we can imagine. I just, I just There are so many things I can't imagine conquering in my life. Um, and he's like no no you need to believe me that we will do this together but you're going to have to take responsibility for what i give you responsibility for and that that's another dynamic we we could go deep into that cuz that could be a lengthy discussion is what is our responsibility and we tapped on or touched on touched on pieces of that in other podcasts but to this point It's a very, you talk about a passage that I really don't want us to process because I don't know where it would go, but it's a process where he talks about Jesus is saying, I'm not even drawn to mind where it is, but Jesus is saying, I will give you to the disciples, I will give you the keys to the kingdom, whoever you forgive on earth will be forgiven in heaven, whoever you don't forgive, and it's like there is this role and responsibility and power That makes me very uncomfortable Mm. and not so much because of me, but because I've seen power abuse so much in church settings, even in very subtle ways of when you, if if you're part of a church for very long, you're going to run across somebody else's area, their zone, and they could be the best people in the world, but if they are not really tuned into humbling themselves inside the Lord, it's going to come across as territorial and combative. and
1: So this gets what? this kind of gets to what amazes me about this passage is like, I totally see that. And I am so, I try to be so um, cognizant of, of that reality that so many people have you in the church specifically have used their power and their authority to oppress, to, um, to hurt people and to leverage their position over the kingdom. And, and what I think about this I think so many times there there have been a lot of people, a lot of church people, a lot of good people that are trying to do their best, that have hurt me or hurt people I love in in, in very real ways. What I think is so, if I was going to equate it, I would even call some of these people dishonest people. And what's something that I didn't really pick up on this passage until reading it a few times is the manager is called a dishonest manager. The owner, the master, doesn't. He, he labels the manager as a dishonest manager. He doesn't label his act as a dishonorable act. Hmm. And I think, man, this is this gives me such hope. Um, for yeah, check it. Double check for me.
2: No, you're you're right. It was something else that. that oh, okay. In my head. Go ahead.
1: Jason started scrolling on his phone. So this amazes me and gives me hope, because there are so many times where I think, how can the church do good? How can we how as an organization after all the things that we failed and struggled with and, and the dishonesty and the man just the the fear that has run rampant through our churches? And I think how do we climb out of it? How do we approach a broken world and offer them hope and love and show them the gospel and and you know use our wealth, use our currency to help purchase quote unquote um spots for them in the kingdom? It's I think by shrewdness and it's going to be done by broken men and women who have got things wrong in the past. And I think about my own life, there have been times where I felt like I didn't have the power to enact change or the power to to be a different person or lead a different way because I know I've done X, I've done Y and I've done Z. And I think, man, how how are we going to weather a lot of the storms that have come our way? Man, I think this passage is really... Um, I think it can be really foundational for just my walk in this area, particularly. So I am really.
2: Oh man, I almost went bugging out. Have, do you guys use bugging out anywhere? I am really
1: bugging. I don't out. know. I am old. I am having a child. Uh, you, so, you said you had, you had last week. You said you had lunch with somebody that made me, made me look old. So right, yeah, I, anyway. I am not. I am not the proper gauge. Deciding okay, so
2: to ask the youth in our culture. Anyway, th- this is why I love doing this with you and with our the other people that listen in so parker in this case is because I am learning so much you are absolutely right it starts with this story starts with the guy is fired for mismanaging um mm-hmm. it's he was stealing he wasting his possessions is the word in the NIV and so he's already established as dishonest because that's what he's saying I want now an honest accounting
1: mm.
2: what's that imply he had previously given him a dishonest accounting He's wasting it. so I don't know if that means he's embezzling or, or what it is. So he's already established as dishonest. dishonest is by the time you get to the end of this parable where he does call him a dishonest manager, that's a descriptive term. He's not calling what he did as dishonest. Ironically, he's now managing honestly and and some people have said, you know, I know that tax collectors in their day, and he's not addressed as a tax collector, but tax collectors had the freedom. To overcharge, they yeah. had a they had a amount they had to collect, and then the freedom to overcharge. And some people have said, and I, this may come from I I've not seen I, this, I've heard, this but too, you know what I'm yes. saying is yes. it's it's the overcharge because it's only ten percent or twenty percent that he taken he away. cuts the percentage that he was going to take from it, exactly, which yeah. would be his income. So he's actually giving up, he's giving up today. What, what he feels like, he would normally feel like he has a right to for benefit tomorrow. So now if you take that and apply it to grace,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I don't want to give you grace because it scares me. If, if, if you're teaching something about Jesus that I don't agree with, it's, why does that bother me? You, you know, you said I, I do this all the time. I do this all the time as well. Mm-hmm. But what is that scares me so much about you holding a point of view about Jesus that I find fundamentally wrong? even if you said Jesus isn't the son of God, which I think is is the most offensive thing, the most anti-biblical thing to say, but why does it scare me so much? You know, because fear drives most of the ugliness that I've experienced in church. When you get down to it, it's like, what are you afraid of? Because calm people can say, people that are secure in their relationship with God can say, I disagree with that. And I need you to understand, I don't want you to influence other people. That, that's not being controlled by your anger. That's calmly disagreeing and then setting a boundary to say, you need not to have influence over people that, I, that I'm leading. But the dynamic of, of this fear, which is what I see every time any church makes a change, if you make anything that's perceived as a doctrinal change, there's going to be a lot of challenge and turmoil. So so there's two things here, and, and you may have something else. I, I want to give room for that. One is understanding the passage, and I feel like my understanding of this passage has dramatically increased in the last 20 minutes, or how long we've gone. Mm-hmm. The next is, how do I apply this? Sure. You know, and you may have something you want to talk about before that, but that's where my head's now transitioning to. Okay, how can I live with this truth of God
1: better? Yeah, there, there's something, there's a thought that I, I wanted to talk about that kind of specifically addresses that the practical aspect of this. In this story, the manager is able to use something material um, for temporal gain. The manager is able to use something that is finite, something here on earth, something that is so easily corruptible, not just for you, but for systems and for large groups of people and use it for good. Jesus is recognizing that we live in a fallen world and that he is going to redeem methods that usually corrupt people, and he's going to make them ways to not just benefit others, but build his kingdom. So, practically speaking, Jason, do you have anywhere you want to go with it?
2: So, in in a broader context, uh, this starts in Luke 15, where tax collectors and sinners were gathering to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees were there as critics and they're saying he welcomes sinners, and then Luke fifteen is these three parables about how God feels about the individual. He'll, he goes after the lost sheep, the lost coin, to the person that that knows him and separates themselves from him. The prodigal son, in this case, uh, he waits, and then is gracious, and and it really does set up what we've been talking about: this idea of. God is so overabundant in grace, and, and many authors have made this observation that prodigal means excessive, and it's really not the Son that's excessive, it's God that's excessive. He's the prodigal God, and, and this idea that, that when the Son comes back, there needs to be a vetting process, because the Son holds views that are not aligned with the Father— and yet the father immediately honors him as a 100%, not second-class citizen, not a slave, not a servant, but a celebrated son so much so, it causes the older brother to say, what have I been doing? You know, mm. And that's a conversation the older son should have had with the dad years ago if he was dissatisfied, You know, and the, and the father would have given him what he needed. But even that shows the interplay that God expects from us with him to have a real relationship, not just a, hey, I showed up on Sunday, I'm in kind of dynamic, or, hey, I did my daily Bible reading, and all those things are good. It's just that's not a relationship. You would not settle with that type of relationship with any human being that you said you have a relationship with. And God is saying this is an interactive dynamic, and so much so that I'm giving you the opportunity to work with me in offering grace to the the world. I think of Philippians chapter 1, where Paul is saying people are preaching the message they heard from him they're preaching against him who is now in prison and they're doing it for financial gain and he's like but at least jesus has preached and i'm like paul that is absurd you are wrong motivation matters more than than the message You're like nope the message matters more and i'm like i have no idea how you look at the world and that's the crux of this story the shrewd manager is that you, he's saying, I want you to understand what you are inheriting and have inherited as a child of the king, the the, the promised child. And you look at Galatians for for a, a deep dive into that dynamic. He said, is so much more than what surrounds you. And later on, Parker didn't get this passage. He says, look, you can only serve one master, or God, or money. And the, the Pharisees sneer at him. And I don't believe just for that verse. The whole concept, they had done this dynamic of, of saying, no, no, being successful in life is exactly the same as being successful in the kingdom. And he's like, no, 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 no. You use the blessings of life. And ultimately, if I have money, what is that from God's perspective? Ex- uh, except a, a demonstration of his grace to me. So I need to be demonstrating grace in always, including my money. But again, this is a parable. It's not doctrine. He's not talking about financial management here. He's talking about a spirit of saying, I see something greater than I'm a part of. And so I'm not shaken by your views. Or, or even what's going on in the election or, or what's going on in the world. I'm not shaken. I can have opinions on those things. I can have energy around those things and anger and sadness, these kind of things. But those do not define my reality. And I'm going to use every bit of grace that God gives me to express to others around me. You know, How would it change? So let's very practically. I'm online and I see this news article that just drives me crazy. And I think, well, they just don't see. And so I'm going to type something up, or and and maybe it's not to the author of that article, maybe it's to all my friends about this article, or this thing is happening in Philadelphia. I can't wait
1: till Aunt Cheryl reads this. It's going to make her so mad.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Or, or I'm I'm seeking an echo chamber, you know, because only only godly people think the way I or God, all godly people will think the way I do. If you don't think the way I do, then you're not of God. And this is the opposite of that mentality. So even something as basic as that, if I am first and foremost saying, I don't belong to this world, I'm in it, but I'm not of it. Mm-hmm. And God has made me somewhat of an arbiter, if that's the right word, but, but well, he uses a reconciler, uh, a go-between. Now, Jesus is the ultimate go-between, but I participate in that by showing grace to the people that do and say and believe things that I don't agree with. And this has been hamstringing Christians for generations is that if we have some moral difference or ideal difference, you know, a difference of ideas, then that means our first order business is to shut you down instead of we're going to trust God even with this conversation. And we're not going to be shaken if you say things that we don't agree with. We're going to take it in. We're going to not assume that God's not using you. I've heard this said before, but we really need to apply it. If God could use evil dictators in the Bible, do you not think he could use somebody that's of a different political party to teach you something?
0: Mm.
2: You know, if God can speak through a donkey, (laughs) you know, then how much more can he speak through human beings that are made in His image? And I think if I can get it that in that small way, then I can start it, to apply it to bigger things. And this doesn't so, have to be just the enemy; it could be your
1: spouse, it could sure. be anybody. So it starts with how do I live that out myself? Because as you live it out, it begins to affect more and more people, and more and more people begin to see it and react, and hopefully, um, hopefully, change the ways. So I, I just want to maybe just hone in a tiny, a tiny bit more. So. Like Parker said, Jesus here in this parable and so often is using um, monetary terms to get to a higher meaning, to a higher calling, and he talked about grace being the currency of the kingdom. And so how, as, as hopefully lavish givers of grace, how do we dole that out? shrewdly does that make sense how do we how are we shrewd managers of this gift that God God has given us God has so lavishly given us grace and love and he has given us the ability to to do the same for others and so how do we go about using the things that God has given us to to show and to give that grace shrewdly
2: yeah so it says in John chapter 1 that Moses came with the law and Jesus came with grace and truth. And since Jesus is God incarnate, he is love. So the way I think about this, if I really want to love somebody, I have to be asking God, what are the percentages of grace and truth? And you see this in Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler, that's easy to go to. Lots of truth. There's grace there, but a lot of truth to the woman caught in adultery, a lot of grace. But there's still truth there. And I think with this, so if I'm considering a situation where somebody's doing something wrong, because the way you could take this is, well, then, yeah, don't ever correct anybody for anything. And it's like when we covered the the dynamic of judgment, you know, and how you need to remove your plank and then help the person remove their speck. We're not saying that you never correct someone. You know, if the word of God is given for correction, encouragement, admonishment, rebuke, that means you're going to be used to provide that to other people. But you first have to humble yourself inside the Lord so that he will lift you up. And that lifting up means giving you, or one application of that is giving you what you need for that interaction. So I notice you're doing something that I I feel is patently wrong. You're being uh, mean to your dog. (laughs) you know what I mean mm-hmm. uh, you don't have a dog so i feel pretty safe that's not happening um and so you're being really mean to your dog
1: <laughs> i got that going for me and i think and
2: i think oh, that's the one safe thing i had to talk to you about anyway the uh, <laughs> but but uh, cruelty uh, that's sure. at the very least love is love is not rude you know so you're being rude so i so i say hey tell me about you know this you know what i mean but even before i have that conversation i'm like okay i need to be checking myself why do i want this corrected in you mhm Can I just provide grace or is this, because as long as it's about me, it's not going to
1: help you. So that question, why do I, why do I want this? Right. That's okay. That's, that's my takeaway for today. That's the, that's the big thing. Why do I want this change in this person? Why do I want this change in myself? Right. And okay, that, that's going to be the way I process things. And I think for me, so often the answer is because I want to feel more comfortable about a situation because I want to feel better about myself. I want to feel better about you uh, in relation to myself. And I think what what Jesus is after here, what God is after, is why do I want this? It's because I want them to see who Jesus is. I want them to experience what a real and true relationship with Jesus is, and what it brings about, and how it transforms not just their life but so many others. That that question that's going to be really helpful helpful for me.
2: I I really appreciate because you drew that out. I would have gone on with my next 10 things. But yeah, I think camping there is good. So I'm reflecting, I have had the unwanted experience a few times in my life of knowing a husband was cheating on his wife uh, in with another woman. And for whatever reason, I was in the place that I knew I needed to go talk to him, you know? So as I look back, I'm like, why did I want to talk to him? Cause these were all people that went to my church or were in my group in some way. And I'm like, I'll be honest, a big driver was somebody will eventually say, why didn't you talk to him? Mm-hmm. Why didn't anybody talk to him? I hear that question from Christians all the time who know about people's sins, like, why isn't anybody talking to him? I'm like, why have you not talked to him? Yeah. Well, it's not my place. And I'm like, whose place is it? You know? Um, and, that, and that ignoring isn't love either. That's right. right? Yeah. It, that's also saying, what's the best just for me? Yeah. And, and
1: ignoring the, it is ignoring is what makes me feel comfortable is where I find my, exactly. my peace, my exactly. happiness.
2: So if I were to go back and educate myself, my past self, to say, hey, before you go and talk to this man, um, you need to ask yourself, what's this about for you? Why do you want to do it? Is it, is it leading? Now, here, here's the rub. Here's the rub. So I realize at my motivational point, I'd, I can't imagine a time to get to a place that I'm doing it out of love for him. I just want to. Now, you can make a case for loving the spouse, Mm -hmm. And in every case, I'm like, you need to tell your spouse, Mm -hmm. you know, I, and I considered it God's work, even that I knew about it because there are a billion reasons why I wouldn't know about it, but I just happen to know about it. And I, I think this is, this is the challenge we have is this is always, you can't give a 10 step plan because God always works differently. But I think that that's where it starts is, is what if you can't come to a place of love with this? You know what I mean? What do you do?
1: And that's that's. I think that's the beauty of of this passage is that we can look back at, you know, ten or fifteen different times where we where we didn't have the proper motivation, and yet God is still wanting to use that that the dark motivation or the not uh, not his motivation, and he used it for good. Right? It's it, it's right and good that a husband would then confess to his wife and that she would she would get to know about that like that that's right and good even though the motivation for the confrontation might not have been the most pure and so it's this beautiful recognition right that you can look back and go i i wish i had handled things differently and i'm going to work to handle things better in the future but just because i was dishonest maybe i was a dishonest manager in this situation doesn't mean that there was god wasn't getting anything done or god wasn't doing anything with it
2: that is brilliant and convicting because now you go back to Philippians 1 where Paul is saying these people are preaching the gospel for the wrong motive.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm the guy sharing the message with the wrong motive. But God, in the in the case that I'm talking about, God used that poor motivation to get the message to who the message needed to get to. Yeah, And so that's both convicting that, man, I don't want to be that person that's doing this for my own dishonest, well, I don't want people, I'm the minister here, I better do the right thing, somebody's got to talk to them, you know, I I don't want that to be, I think those are factors you take in, but I don't want that to be my prime motivation, but also to know, even when I'm doing my absolute best, and it's not very good, but to trust God and participate with God, God will redeem those things, even if I do them
1: incorrectly. Thank you for listening. This was a, a really great and complicated parable, and we just thank you so much, Parker, for man forcing us to interact with it and man just bringing up a lot of really fascinating points that I hadn't even really conceived of and I don't even know if we talk through them all I know I'm just gonna I'm gonna have to spend some time just praying and working through it together and honestly in my own study this passage you know usually there's some sort of scholarly consensus I mean this passage there are so many different interpretations so many different people avoid this passage and so man if If you have a different perspective or if you've, you know, studied and heard a different thing, I would personally, I would just love to hear it because this passage is such an easy one to hide from, to look away from. And I think when we feel that way about a particular part of Scripture, that means that there's a lot of areas for growth and for learning. And I'm sensing that about this passage just in the past 30 to 40 minutes that Jason and I spent recording. And so, man, we we thank you as always. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at amazedandperplexed at gmail.com or go to our website, amazedandperplexed.com. You can also fill out a form there if you want to participate in uh, in a parable. And uh, we would love for you to be a part of it. Grace, peace, and love.